Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Thinking at CMC about the Hajj, about the Eid, praying for the Hajjis, now of course sadly reduced in number thanks to COVID-19, but it's one of the culminations of our year. And today happens to coincide with a uh, rather more secular pilgrimage event which has really gripped the country's soul, which is of course the uh, match between England and Italy. A kind of secular pilgrimage, if you like, uh, focused on Wembley, but uh, an interesting illustration of what brings us together and how we see ourselves, including plenty of Muslims, even some CMC graduates uh, excitedly tweeting, football's coming home. It's everybody. Uh, and the symbols seem to be, well, it's about England, but what does that now mean in our secular, post-traditional, post-narrative, post-everything age? Mm. The fans who bring along enormous spitfire-shaped balloons. Mm. The fans who sport the cross of St. George without having the least idea as to what it actually means. It's, it's become a festival of exhibiting forgotten and unknown symbols, but still more significant as an event, one that captures our imagination and brings the pilgrims much more thoroughly than, say, St. George's Day, our national day, largely honoured in the breach, not the observance. Remembrance Sunday, it's football really, that, that is the great Hajj event of our story. So as Muslims, believers who want people to be going to a place that has something in it, football is empty. Whereas the Kaaba is empty but not empty. It is the place of the Sakina. And that's the real point. People are there for a reason which is about themselves, not their identity. Uh, that in this age of the celebration of emptiness, we as believers, looking at what's left of England and other Western countries, will want to know what people used to be interested in. If we're interested in a form of integration that puts down roots rather than the integration willed by Whitehall, which basically means Muslims agreeing with the latest doctrines of sexuality and whatever else it is that is the current fashion, but deep integration. Uh, we all find that there was something called the matter of Britain, an old sense of the country being about something and for something. And this involved various forms of pilgrimage. CMC regularly goes to Walsingham, which is an area that has obviously conspicuous Quranic resonances. It said that in the Middle Ages, most people in England had been to Walsingham at least once in their lives. Uh, there was a pilgrimage to Canterbury, many other places, and as in the Islamic world, places and times were seen as having particular spiritual qualities or khasa'is which people would seek out. One of the biggest pilgrimages, of course, which is rather difficult for Muslims to integrate with, is uh, the great pilgrimage of Western Europe, which is the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, the pilgrim route, the scallop shell, uh, which leads ultimately to the Cathedral of St. James and Compostela. And the central image there 
is a San Jaime Matamoros. St. James killed the Muslims. That's his name. The patron saint of the Reconquista, the definer of what it was to be a Western European. Uh, Matamoros, slay the Moors, kill the Muslims. <laughs> Difficult for us, it would be said, to integrate into that particular ritual or to regard it with any kind of favour. But there it is, and he's on his horse uh, with his white face cutting the heads off these uh, sad-looking, dark-skinned Saracens, Moors, Muslims who are being trampled underfoot. That's where the pilgrim road takes you. Well, that was one uh, galvanic force, a kind of alignment of spiritual energies in traditional Europe, one of uh, sorry memory for ourselves. Uh, but there are others. And for people who still lived in an age when the country was about something, uh, would look partly at Walsingham, but partly also at Glastonbury. And I want to talk about Glastonbury, which might seem to be a million miles from the Hajj at Mecca. At the moment, partly because I was there yesterday and went up Glastonbury Tour and saw what, what is left of that traditional sort of magnet of English spirituality and now largely predictably engulfed by a tide of consumerized New Age shops for crystals and hospitals for homeopaths and uh, all kinds of uh, alternative therapies, goddess worship being the, the predominant theme and poor Christian Glastonbury largely subsumed under this enormous, rather indulgent wave of New Age sentimentality, but still they're drawn there for a reason. And beneath all of the mock druids, and the mock priestesses, uh, there is the reality of a place that has been significant in the matter of Britain for many thousands of years. And it's interesting to note that it is a place that attracts Muslims. There's a, been a permanent Naqshbandi presence there for well over 20 years. Famous Sheikh Nazim al-Haqqani, when he went there in the 1990s, said Glastonbury is the spiritual heart of England. And he explained that his own teacher, Sheikh Abdullah Daghestani, had said that Britain would be particularly susceptible to the message of Islam. Mm. And that when he came to Glastonbury, he understood why that would be. And Sheikh Abdulaziz al-Bukhari, from Al-Quds, also went there and prayed there. Um, Sheikh Hassan Dyke and many others, and it, it's a, a small byway of the British Muslim experience, but one that indicates where I think an increasing generation, uh, increasingly significant generation of new Muslims are interested because they want to know what is this land, what is its spiritual topography, how can they blend with it, how can they escape from the kind of iron cages of those Luton mosques and follow the Quranic injunction to seek God, to seek holiness, to find the ways of Allah in his creation, uh, to see the signs of Allah in his creation, following that commandment. So what does it mean to us and what on earth is its connection to these 10 days that initiate the, the kind of build up to the, the Hajj, the great culmination of our year? Well, Glastonbury uh, is said to be sacred because according to the legend, and we hear very solidly in the realm of legend rather than history, uh, Joseph of Arimathea collected the blood of Christ from the crucifixion in what became the Holy Grail and brought it to England. Hmm. 
and specifically to Glastonbury, which at the time, because the marshes around it were navigable, was more or less on the coast. But a place that is certainly pre-Christian, because there's Neolithic remains, stone circles, it's not that far from Stonehenge, and clearly a very important cultic centre. There's the so-called Sweet Road, which may have had uh, religious significance, which is said to be the oldest known road in the world. It was a big place. Uh, so the Christians kind of invent these memories, and then King Arthur is said to be buried there. It's the Isle of Avalon, that kind of early William of Malmesbury, and then 19th century sort of romanticizing of the chivalric origins of the, the English story, not the story of empire and racism, but the story of the land as a place of the holy, of, of sacrality. Uh, and if you look at the map of the place and you go to the place, well, you see the most obvious thing about the sacred geometry of the place is not the ley lines that supposedly are around it. And uh, I, I knew Michael Glickman, who is a leading seriologist, uh, as a crew, uh, uh, crop circle expert, is, is dead now, but he was very interested in asking me questions about the significance in Islamic sacred geometry of these patterns which mysteriously appear in fields, many of them no doubt spurious, but some of them genuinely intriguing and uh, difficult to interpret, and also the pattern of the ley lines. John Michel, who was always a, fa a friend of the Muslim community, and those of a certain age who remember the uh, Salman Rushdie crisis may recall that the only significant non-Muslim voice that wrote at any length in defense of the Muslim position was actually John Michel. He was in touch with, anyway, uh, a very interesting countercultural person who understood the Muslim respect for sacred people and sacred places. So Glastonbury is very significant for such speculators and attempts to archaeologically find what is holy beneath a kind of Lidl, Aldi, football surface of modern flat Britain. But if you look at the, the city, uh, well, it's a small town of Glastonbury, and you can see how the Christians appropriated the older sacred spaces and places, and some of them uh, seem to have been inhabited from the time of the, the Old Stone Age, the Paleolithic, very ancient, maybe 100,000 years. People have been worshipping there, doing various things, at a time when people were attentive to what we might call the state of ihram, in other words, a sense of uh, self-denial and approaching certain spaces through making sacrifices, physical and uh, economic, in order to approach the temenos, the sacred place. And you see all of the features of a traditional sacred place. There's a sacred well, of course, the chalice well. There are straight lines and circles, which are the basic geometric pattern that people evolve uh, through on, on the Hajj. Uh, there are the plains, of course, which are like Arafat. Um, and there is the circling up the tor on these strange rills, which are sometimes said to be agricultural terraces, which seems a little unlikely to me, but <coughs> more likely to be the remains of some <coughs> Bronze Age uh, labyrinth of spiritual significance, rather like Borobudur in Indonesia, which CMC visited uh, only a couple of years ago. So really a place that for those who still had a sense of the significance of, of the British Isles, a great and important magnet. So, if you look at them, the significance of it, Joseph of Arimathea brings the Grail, and it's basically the town of the Grail. Uh, 
Now, as we saw in a lecture on the Hajj last year, the most reasonable academic, secular, if you like, explanation of the Grail story is if you go back to the main medieval, happens to be German, Grail narrative, um, Wolfram von Eschenbach, uh, you'll find that he says he gets the story of the Grail from a guy who got it from an Arab in Moorish Spain who said oh, the, grain, the Grail is a stone that fell from heaven. The idea of it turning black through the sins of humanity and clearly it's, it's Al-Hajr al-Aswad as we said last year and this is recognised by very many historians. The most likely origin of the Grail legend, which is certainly not biblical, is that it is Al-Hajr al-Aswad, the black stone. And amongst all of those crystal sellers and crystal ball galers in Glastonbury, this is what they don't appreciate. The stone, which is the sign of the Alastubirabbikum, uh, so full of meaning. And if you look at Simon Amira's new amazing book on the Kaaba, I think it's the first academic book in English ever on the Kaaba, he talks a lot about the enormously rich significance of, of, of this. So in Glastonbury, the medieval pilgrim goes there, pays his dues to the abbots of this huge uh, monastery, a Benedictine house which has been created there, appropriating some of the old pagan energy centres, as the New Age people will say. But if you look at the map, you can see, if you put your back to the Church of St. Benignus, which is also on an ancient site, and you are somewhere round about the spiritual heart of the abbey, which is ruined, thanks to Henry VIII, of course, and then you follow the road that everybody must have taken for thousands of years towards the Tor, this strange, it looks like Jebel and Nor, and you spiral up it till you get to the, to the summit. That if you're going from this one sacred centre, this Temenos, to the other, uh, you're, as it were, following a straight line. And if you look on your ordnance survey map and you get out your compass, you'll see that straight line exactly if you extend it beyond the Tor, exactly to within half a degree, ends up at the Kaaba in Makkah. So it's an interesting reflection of the divine intention that all of those hundreds of, you know, understandably, not knowing pilgrims in the Middle Ages, all of those countless thousands of them who went there and then went down that road and then were actually looking for the grail. And that road takes you past the chalice well, which is like the Zamzam of Glastonbury, if you want to make these analogies. But that's exactly the direction that you would follow if you really wanted to go to the Grail Temple, which is evidently the Haram in Mecca, the great sanctuary, where the original Grail actually is. And for centuries, Christians, including Arthur's Knights of the Round Table, trotted around looking for the grail. The state, the minor industry in New Age writing, where is the grail, what is the grail? Uh, it's a kind of uh, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code. It's a huge world. In our secular environment, we still want to find it and to know what it was. It's an interesting moment of the recrudescence or the perpetuation of a sacred symbol in an otherwise very flat age. But the reality is that those pilgrims going from the abbey towards the Tor were actually exactly facing the Qibla. So that's the divine sign, if you like, that within the sacred geometries of the United Kingdom and this great orientation, uh, there is this line 
that helps the people unknowingly to face the great sanctuary, which is not just significant for Muslims because it's pre-Muslim, it's Abrahamic, it's Mathabat al-Linnas, where Amna, a place of resort for mankind and a place of safety, even though only the initiated, as it were, can go there now. Otherwise you'd have 10 million tourists from Florida with their cameras. It's obvious why they're not allowed in. But you have to be initiated through the Shahada to approach the final Temenos, the great center of the sacred on earth. <clears throat> so that was an interesting thought that I had as I uh, labored my way up uh, Glastonbury tour. And it's interesting to see how many people are still seeking something, still feeling something, want to go on that journey, want the grail. You get to the top and there are you know, middle-aged guys walking their dogs and so forth and people chasing their children. But there's also quite a few people meditating, facing some direction which they hope is significant. But of course they don't have the direction. Uh, it's kind of there but, but not there. So uh, that was an interesting example of the way in which the yearning for the stone, for the house, for these ancient practices of the sacred well, the straight line of the sa'i, the circle of the tawaf, are universal. And it's interesting <laughs> to note that you can go up the tour either clockwise or anti-clockwise. And this again has very ancient significance. It's even said that the reason why People in England and India and Japan have always been driving on the left, not the right. It's because they were solar civilizations recognizing a solar calendar and a solar divinity, and that's the way the sun moves. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, south of the equator, of course, it's quite different. So uh, those civilizations, when they go to their sacred places, will go clockwise around them. It's forgotten now, but until living memory, it was a tradition in England. If you were riding your horse or hiking or walking, you would, and you came to a church or a cemetery, you would always go around it on the left, leaving the sacred place on your right. Piece of superstition or folklore, if you like. That way is called deosil, which is a very ancient, probably German word. That's the way you go. And uh, uh, that tends to be practices of circumambulation in Western Christendom, where they abolished lunar things and lunar calendars and moved towards the idea of Sol Invictus and a solar calendar. Uh, but in the Semitic tradition, and also in very many ancient pagan traditions, the way around a sacred place is what's called Widdershins, which is anti-clockwise. And actually they even do that in some Eastern Christian churches, I've noticed, if you go to... Uh, a traditional Greek wedding, which I'd recommend. It, it's a very beautiful thing. They walk around the altar and the screen seven times, but the way Muslims go around the Kaaba, anti-clockwise, they still have that ancient pre-solar uh, idea. Uh, and certainly in Judaism, if you've been to a Jewish betrothal ceremony, the real thing, which traditional weddings are always very beautiful in world religions, uh, uh, the, the tradition is for the bride to go around the groom seven times. She makes a tawaf around him. And she goes widdershins, anti-clockwise. The rabbis all agree on that. So her heart is towards 
the source, towards the sanctuary, towards the place of, of, of authority, of Khilafah. Uh, and that, of course, is also what we do on the Hajj. The Hajj is a very ancient thing, as Amira talks about in his book, where he speaks a lot about the cosmology of the Kaaba and the stars and the solstices towards which the Kaaba is, is oriented. Uh, note this, that as we go around the Kaaba, the heart is on the side of the Kaaba, and we walk around it anti-clockwise seven times, because uh, as the religion of Fitra, uh, Islam is, is lunar in its calendar, and the Qur'an is quite severe on those who try to introduce extra little bits of months in order to make it comply with, with, with the sun, and the symbol of the religion is, of course, the crescent moon, and there's uh, a lot of connections between human biorhythms and the lunar cycles, which go back to very, very ancient times, certainly unrecordable and probably impossible really to prove academically. But in any case, so uh, if you see that you're heading towards the Qibla in Glastonbury, surrounded by all of this new age paraphernalia, uh, uh, you come to the tour and the preferred way is going Widdershins. And a lot of these pagan goddesses <laughs> will be walking probably barefoot with their piercings and their tie-dyed uh, robes uh, alongside with you, which is one reason why a lot of Muslims find the place indigestible, quite understandably, because it has been overlaid with this mock paganism. Uh, who knows what the Druids really were or what they did, but we still want to get away from monotheism and get back to Druidry. Well, good luck. There's no Silsila, there's no Shajara, there's no Ijaza. It's, it's an extinct species. You can't resurrect it any more than you can resurrect a passenger pigeon, it's, it's gone. But the sign that so many people want it is an indication that the idea of the matter of Britain, the idea of pilgrimage, the idea of these ancient forms, the sacred world, the straight line, the coursing, the sevenfold, uh, all of these things represent something that is profoundly antique and ancient and primordial and healing in human beings. Because a pilgrimage, a real pilgrimage, is a journey not just some external feature, but is about inner transformation as well, which is the meaning of the talbiyah's orientation towards the bake. We don't say la bake ya rahim sterling, we say la bake Allahumma la bake. So it's about something. So in these days when we, as it were, circle towards the sacrality of the Hajj, even those of us who this year find our hearts attached to the house. And Imam al-Ghazali and others talk quite a lot about this very remarkable emotion, al-ishtiyaqu ila al-bayt. He says that's the beginning of the hajj, longing for the house, that when you think about the Kaaba and the proximity of the Kaaba and what the Kaaba represents and the divine forgiveness and erasure of what you've done that is there and the closeness to the sakina, of course, that's what we want, we have a natural yearning for it. It's beloved. Isn't the Kaaba often compared to a beloved in all of our poetry? It's the veiled Layla. It's uh, again a very uh, a reminder of the feminine significance of, uh, of this. So these are uh, the Layal in Ashar, the Ten Nights, and Al-Ayyam al-Ashar. And we have a series of hadiths that remind us that the Hajj is for all of us because these ten days are significant for all of us. And the hadiths uh, tend to be, for some reason, in, 
Imam Abu Isa al-Tirmidhi in his Sahih, usually called as Sahih, is a hadith from Ibn Abbas in which the Holy Prophet says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, ma min ayyamin min al-amali salih fihin ahabba ilallah min hadhihi al-ayyam al-ashar. There is no day of in which there can be righteous action. There are no days which are more beloved to Allah than these ten days. And this has been accepted into the fiqh and the sharia. This is a special time. A time of not so much calculating the increase of actions, but rather uh, the divine love of the intensified things that we do. The hajj is there, the spirit recalls the Kaaba, the qibla becomes more real, uh, and therefore the quality of our works is increased. Uh, and for the devout down the Muslim centuries, there's been an awareness that as you see the full moon, the moon again uh, growing, and the crescent swelling, uh, the hajj is on its way. And of course the hajj moon is one of the beautiful things, especially if you can get away from those arc lights and sodium lights that they've put up everywhere. But one of the most beautiful features of the hajj is always the moon. وَكَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ يَصُومُ Tis'an, tis'a dhil hijjah. Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, says in Tirmidhi again, used to fast ten, nine days of dhul hijjah. You don't fast on the day of Eid. But the fast of the day of Arafah is particularly important. And then later the hadith goes on to talk about wayoma uh, ashura, the day of ashura, which got about, about a month later. Uh, and three days in each month. So again, we have the idea not just of good works in these ten days as the crescendo builds up and we become aware of the sacrality that is in times as well as places. Even if we can't get to the place, there's an intense intensification of our experience of the time. Uh, and that fasting is one of the things that are prophetically counselled at this time, in order to sharpen our sense of attentiveness, our ihram-style tajreed, or stripping away of our dunya attachments. So, uh, according to a hadith, the, the culmination of this is the fast of Arafah, which is, alhamdulillah, still very uh, widely observed in the Ummah for, for the non-hajjis, uh, at a time when, according to the hadith, again it's in Tirmidhi, uh, a successful, inwardly balanced and directed and mindful, if you like, fast of the day of Arafah is an atonement for the sins of the previous year and the next year. You get two years. It doesn't mean that you can watch Netflix all day and then the sun goes down and you binge and all of the stuff you've been doing is magically washed away. No, um, it's not uh, as stupid as that. It is uh, about uh, the divine regard for those who are not just on the plane of Arafah, sweating and crying and raising their hands in du'a, when the Lord is proud before the angels. Unzuru ila ibadi, atuni, shu'than, ghubran, dahin. Look at my slaves, he says, as he sees the people of Arafat, they've come to me with messy hair. Uh, suffering from heat, uh, tatty, 
Dusty, uh, I bear witness to you that I have forgiven them. So that's the great miracle of the Hajj is that on Arafat somehow, despite everything within us and around us, there is that erasure. Uh, this is where the tears fall. There's the Mount of Mercy. It's not called the Mountain of Anger. It's the Mountain of Mercy. The Hajj is about the approach to the one who is Arham al-Rahimin. And that's the... Uh, you know, the, the, the reality of the divine is, is characterized by that. Ketaba ala nafsi al rahma. He has prescribed mercy upon himself. So we can't be there on that day you know, where the, the divine recording angels press delete, really delete, not kind of recoverable if you pay some IT expert a lot of money to get them back from their scrambled state, but really delete as if they had never been there. That's a pretty extraordinary thing when you think about how useless we usually are. That's the divine mercy. Uh, but if we can't be there, and most of us can't be there, then to mark it with the fast and with good actions. And it's also uh, recommended for people to give sadaqah. Mm-hmm. And because CMC is, in my humble opinion, a place where Islam is not celebrated as just an aspect of ancestral inheritance that one is anxious about preserving, but as something that points people towards God. We are very theocentric. And where the Hajj and everything else in Islam is not just a a checklist of fiqh obligations, but is a journey to the heart and to the the Rabb al-Alameen, where we try to have a full sunnah, the inward as well as the outward, uh, that CMC, in my view, represents a good destination in our muddy and ambiguous age for people's sadaqah and their khair and good deeds are multiplied and aid our attentiveness because the effectiveness of a good deed is not so much measured by its outcome in the akhirah, which is subject to the divine knowledge and mercy, but the unclouding of our hearts. Because our problem, our only problem really, is that we've forgotten the Qibla, we've forgotten the alas to be the significance of the stone, and we're like those meditators on Glastonbury tour who don't know what to do, there's no irshad, they don't have a Qibla, but they know that they want something. And that's not a good place for us to be. Uh, Alhamdulillah, Islam in its immutable and ancient and gorgeous practices reconnects us to something that is immutable and absolutely serious. That we can go to a place like Glastonbury and know what it indicates. So we, even though people tend to see our community as the community that really doesn't belong, a bunch of weird people from beyond, actually turn out to the people who, to be the people who most belong because we can retrieve this matter of Britain, not in some flag-waving, jingoistic, inflatable spitfire way, but seeing the sacrality and the goodness that can be identified here, which points onwards by the divine decree to the great sanctuary, the place of the real Sakina. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us an attentive month of the Hajj, uh, to uplift us in this time, to help us perhaps to view films, to read books, to consider the enormous, wonderful majesty of this greatest of all 
journeys. And inshallah, for those who have not made the Hajj, the Hajj of the Umar, to make a strong intention that we will do it sooner rather than later because the Hajj is all majesty and memorable amazingness and to put money aside for another trip to Agadir or Dubai uh, is to misunderstand what really enriches us in life. The Hajj should be number one of our aspirations and inshallah even if all we have in these 10 days is a redoubled determination and love for Allah's house that, that, that will make the time well spent inshallah. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a uh, a good 10 days uh, and inshallah if you subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, you'll see that CMC is setting aside time and energy in these 10 days for various lectures, insights into the Hajj, the meaning, the richness, the incomparable ocean of rich nourishing meaning that, uh, that uh, we should be feasting upon in this starvation age of spiritual void and drought. And inshallah, uh, with CMC, we will be uh, making a good pilgrimage within, even if we can't this year have the idhan to make the pilgrimage, the hajj, without inshallah. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept our actions, accept our intentions, uh, grant us ishtiaq, longing for his house, inshallah, an emotion from which so much is good comes. Inshallah, make us detached from the false pilgrimages of the dunya and focus always in a mindful and modest and loving way on the true qibla and inshallah make us people who truly and sincerely say labbayka allahumma labbayk labbayka la sharika laka labbayk inna alhamda wal ni'mata laka wal mulk la sharika lak the meaning of that is all the meaning you will ever need uh, returning to the place of origin in love and obedience and obudiyah, slavehood, towards the merciful Sakina, the still peaceable presence of Rabb al-Alameen, nothing more beautiful. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept our intentions and give us a good 10 days and nights, inshallah, and forgive us and overlook our shortcomings. Barakallahu feekum, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.